There we go. Great. Well done. Welcome to everyone on the tape who's listening. Sorry you couldn't be here live. Um, let me start with a little book plug. Um, you'll notice that one or two books that I've uh, set out there that pertain particularly to this Lent course. Uh, this is a, a booklet, really. I think it's £2.99. Um, the Holy Spirit, Nicky Gumbel. And that is basically just the talks from on the personal work of the Holy Spirit from the Alpha course. So um, if you've got... Um, the book Questions of Life then, then that essentially although I think it's a, an updated version um, and uh, an edited version but those are the talks on the Holy Spirit from um, the Alpha Course and then um, two books by this man Jack Deere this one Surprised by the Power of the Spirit I think the other one is Surprised by the Voice of God uh, written by um, uh, Jack Deere did I say Jack Stewart? no, Jack Deere um, Jack Deere was um, a sceptic, really, uh, and was kind of brought up and schooled and formed in slightly more what we might call conservative uh, Christian circles, and came upon a, a fresh realisation of the reality and the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's written about that encounter and then uh, kind of reworked his theological understanding in these two books. They're kind of scholarly and accessible at the same time and I, I found them a great help partly because I think in a sense he echoed my journey I, was, I came to faith in quite a conservative if I can put it like that setting for which I'm, I'm hugely grateful the bedrock of my faith I'd want to say I owe to people who you kind of know but um, I was a wee lad in shorts when people like Jonathan Fletcher and Christopher Ash and others um, taught me and I'm supremely grateful to them um, and I, I suppose over my journey, I've come into a realisation of who the Spirit was. If I'm, if I'm honest, I don't think I was taught an awful lot about the Spirit. And I'm guessing that for, for the majority of us here, that's something of our journey as well. It may not be, forgive me if it's not. But um, these books, for that reason, might be helpful. Um, I think there are also some copies of The Cross of Christ by John Stott, a uh, contemporary classic. So um, do make the most of, of those books. Um, just a couple of things. Little, as I've been preparing this, all the way along, um, I picture these horses galloping by. I think this is the talk that I want to give. Here are the kind of notes that I've got. But as I'm focusing on them, all sorts of horses jog by, and I think, shall I jump on that horse, or shall I just leave it? And uh, here are a couple of horses that I just want quickly to jump on, as it were. Um, issues or things that have been sort of perhaps raised, some of the feedback that uh, I've, you've been kind enough to give. Um, the first actually hasn't come directly from this course, but I know it's, it's, uh, it's a, a, a sort of theory, if you like, that pervades about the Holy Spirit. And it is this, that the Holy Spirit primarily points to Jesus. And I've, I've heard that sort of said, or I've picked that up or read that in various sort of quarters. That the, the primary task of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus. And so we conclude from that that it's, it's all about Jesus. And that's absolutely right. But it just isn't everything that can be said of the Holy Spirit. Because actually, as we look in the Gospels, and we saw in John's Gospel, didn't, didn't we, that Jesus points to the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about a time when he will not be with the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. He will then lead you into all truth. The apostles who then plant churches, and we stand in their tradition. So the Spirit points to Jesus, and Jesus points to the Spirit, that they are part of the great dance of the Trinity. Uh, and so we understand the Godhead three in one through that. And, and that's why, um, uh, the, in a sense, the Apostles' Creed um, 
with just this one phrase, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Why, why so little on that? You know, that's the only phrase, I believe in the Holy Spirit, to this creed that was being formed in the early church, compared to all that's said of Christ. Um, who, uh, the, Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, descended. On the third day he rose again, uh, ascended into heaven. He will come again. I mean, look at all that, all that explanation, all that defense of the Christian gospel centered around Jesus. Why only I believe in the Holy Spirit? I don't know, but I have a theory. And the theory is this, that the Holy Spirit was just so obvious to the early church. It, it was just irrefutable that the Spirit had come. You could see him everywhere. It was a bit like saying, I believe in breathing. Well, yeah, it's just what happens. How else do you account for the explosion of the early church? And so we need the Nicene Creed to flesh out a little bit more. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Um, Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God breathed into the man and the man became a living being. The breath of God, the spirit of God, giving life to human being. The Lord, the giver of life, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. So I don't think it's quite sufficient to say that the Holy Spirit points to Jesus, which he does. He is with the Father and the Son to be worshipped and glorified. We might just have, uh, justifiably I think, with a Trinitarian framework, and I'll come on to that in a minute, have sung a worship song to the Spirit for the life that he gives. I think that's perfectly legitimate in Christian circles. So um, just that on the, the, the Spirit. And the other thing, actually, I teed this up on Sunday, which was very naughty of me. Uh, it was, it was a, a completely unsubtle ruse to get you all here. But I, I put the question, are we a charismatic church? And um, the, because the phrase is used a lot these days, and you may have noticed, and I, I don't mind looking cheesy and stupid for doing this, but I do it for a reason, that I often... Use, coin, if I coin the phrase charismatic, I'll, I'll go like that um, to put inverted commas around it because it's one of those words, as Chris was helping us last week, it's one of those words, that's, or, or was it and Colin as well, it's one of those words that's, that has a changed meaning and it's a slippery word and it means different things to different people. So I want to, I want to use the word, if we're going to use the word biblically. I hope that's all right. Uh, the word charis in Greek means gift or grace. They're kind of synonymous. Grace, that's an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. We, we know of the blessing and the love and the presence of God because of the price Christ paid. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's the gift of God to us. We don't deserve it. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's God's grace or God's gift to us. Charis. So charis mater where you come across that word, is the expression of grace or gift. It is where one makes um, grace or gift, the grace and gift of God, apparent and obvious in some way. We might say, to sum it up in one word, it's, it's, it's kind of undefended, unbounded generosity that comes from God through Christ by the Spirit. Now, with that biblical definition of charismata, Hands up who wants to be in a charismatic church. Oh, that's settled. Um, the Holy Spirit and spirit-filled living. That's a little bit cheeky, actually. I'm not going to stop that there. I recognize 
that in other circles and all around. And contemporary usage, charismatic, carries with it all sorts of other things. I want to come on to that in week five a little bit and to look at um, the church in Corinth. And I want to look at what was going on there, why Paul was rebuking them really, but what it is that we can get from what Paul is teaching about how a spirit-filled church should be, a, a, a biblically charismatic church should be. So I will continue, probably, unless I'm sure, the person I'm dialoguing with, that they and I have the same understanding of charismatic. I'll probably continue to go charismatic, just because we don't want misunderstandings. But a, a church, or a person, full of God's grace, such that it's obvious and it uh, spills to others. Well, I aspire to that, I don't know. Well, no, you do, because you put your hands up. Wonderful. Have you got, you've got the sheets here, I hope? And uh, this is a little route march down here. Let me just say that um, uh, until um, two-thirds of the way down, there's some sort of one or two long words and some theology. And then what we'll do, because the most consistent feedback I've had is that the pews are really uncomfortable. So we'll, we'll sort of stand up and just have a little wiggle or shake. We might, should we sing? No, we won't do that. But we'll have a little wiggle uh, and then we'll, we'll sit down again. Um, my first two, or the first point are these two frameworks. As we come into an understanding of spirit-filled living, um, we've done an overview week one. We've looked at salvation as um, uh, something that is thoroughly Trinitarian. It's God who saves us through the work of Christ and by the work of the Spirit. Uh, it's the experienced reality in the heart of the believer and the heart of the church to, what, to the historical fact of Christ's death for us. Uh, so these two frameworks, I think, are really important as we begin to press into Christian living or spirit-filled living. The first is a Trinitarian framework. I don't want to say too much about that. I, the analogy I gave, I think, week one, um, one of a number that, uh, that a, a, a book exists one and the same time, one in three forms, the, 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 the author who creates it, the book as an entity in itself, and then it, it lives in the mind of the reader uh, and, you know, as it's studied in re- book clubs and all that kind of thing. Of course, the flaw with that analogy is that the book itself is an inanimate object. It's not a person. And so that, that, that analogy is woefully inadequate when we try and apply it to the Trinity because Jesus is alive today and we can know him personally by his spirit in a way that you can't quite know a book. But Trinity is so important because it, it helps us not to divorce our, our understanding of Christ and our under- understanding of the Spirit. Um, it's, it, if, if I'm honest, it's one of the things where I sort of begin to draw in breath with the Alpha Course as is. I, I think the Alpha Course is the most effective evangelistic tool for bringing people, birthing people healthily into the salvific plans of God. But in that you have a lot of Christology here and a lot of pneumatology, Christology the study of Christ, pneumatology the study of the Spirit here, and there just sometimes can perceive to be a gap when in fact we must not separate them. And that's why the framework of Trinity is so important, that God effects salvation through Jesus Christ, which is the experienced reality by the Spirit of the church and individual believers. Salvation is not just the work of Christ. Just as uh, we would talk about, um, I mean, here's Tamsin, wonderfully, resplendently uh, expectant. And we would talk about the birth of this little one, not just as an escape from the womb, but as an entry into life. Of course, it is an escape from the womb, just as Jesus has redeemed us from death by sin. But the Spirit has enabled us to be born, born again. 
into new life. So Trinity, a really important framework. And the second uh, important framework is this word here, eschatology. And that just comes straight from the Greek, eschaton means end. And eschatology is the study of or the knowledge of the end times, the end of the world or the age, if you like. And if you see on the sheet there, the Jewish expectation of the end times and the beginning at the same time, the end of time here on temporal earth, if you like, and the beginning of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven was in this kind of um, two-dimensional stage. We're living in this age, and if you read the Psalms and the Psalmist, their their expectation was that the Messiah, the Saviour, would come, and that would signal the end of this age and usher us into the new age, those who are the people of God, that the the Messiah or Saviour would come to save his people. And that's why they got a little bit confused when Jesus came. Because, as you know, in the start of Mark's Gospel, Jesus announced the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. Now. But it was clear that the end of the age had not come. And that's reflected in Jesus' teachings. Let's just look at um, uh, page 926. I want to spend a little bit of time on this, because I think to understand the framework, it's important then. We've got the theology for us to appreciate something of the lived-out experience of knowing God through the Son and by the Spirit. Um, Here are, chapter 13 is full of Jesus' teachings on the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, as um, Matthew would put it, to an essentially Jewish readership. So look at the parable of the weeds, um, verse 24. And here this teaching on the kingdom is with a decidedly future aspect. Jesus told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. It's interesting, isn't it? You notice that? While everyone was sleeping. Kind of alive, but asleep in the spirit, as it were. And everyone came, uh, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, I don't want to exposit that parable, but just to say, do you notice that there's this sort of sense of ongoingness, wheat and weeds, until a future event, the day of judgment, when the weeds will be uprooted and burned and the wheat will be gathered. And that is, do you notice, um, verse 30, I will tell the harvesters. Uh, And, in fact, if we look, um, uh, verse 41, where Jesus is explaining that parable to his disciples, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. So Jesus teaching about the kingdom with a decidedly future aspect. Even though he's announced the kingdom, according to Mark, the kingdom of God is here, but it's not here completely. That There's still activity that will consummate the coming of the kingdom. And yet, in the very same chapter, look at verse 44, two more parables we're familiar with, I think. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Or again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. In other words, the the treasure or the beauty of the kingdom, as um, linked with this pearl, 
can be discovered now. You can have it now if you're prepared to pay the price, the cost of selling the, uh, buying the field or selling all you have in order to purchase what you know is there now, the treasure or the pearl. So Jesus teaches, in a sense, he's redoing, the, reconfiguring the Jewish, the traditional Jewish understanding of kingdom. And he's saying, in one sense, the kingdom is yet to come at the end of the age. But in another sense, it's already begun. And if you would only see it, if you would only do some digging or sell everything you have, you can lay hands on the kingdom now. And theologians and commentators have kind of shorthanded this this tension of understanding the kingdom now that Jesus has come first, his first coming. Um, as he lived here on earth, as, as the already not yet of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet fully here. And so you might have come across this perhaps in some commentaries or some of the reading you do on parables and Jesus teaching the gospels. It, it's the already but not yet of the kingdom. And, and you see, I've tried to depict that in this uh, diagram here uh, by taking the Jewish expectation, this age and then the age to come, and, and teasing it out so that you can see that the future, the age to come, has, as it were, sort of kind of shunted into the back end of the present age. And Jesus has inaugurated this. He's begun this. So, so this diagram is, is, is known amongst the scholars and commentators as inaugurated eschatology. Okay, I promise no more long words. But that inaugurated eschatology. In other words, Jesus has ushered in and begun the end times. They've not come to the end yet. They're not, we've not completely got to the new age. That's Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. And clearly we're not there yet. But it has begun. The kingdom of God is not here completely but it is here to stay. Now, it is the Spirit. And the New Testament writers, incidentally, pick that up. I mean, Peter, for example, talking about um, us living as pilgrims or as aliens, as strangers. Clear to the New Testament writers, I would say because of their palpable experience of the Spirit, was that heaven is their home. Heaven is our home. And earth here is our temporary residence. It's, it's just presuppositional to the whole of the New Testament. So these two frameworks, Trinity, even though you won't find expounded the doctrine of the Trinity, the reason why the early church fathers had to work hard at, at, at forming that was because they, it was clear that that was how God has chosen to reveal himself. And so in a sense, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity was playing catch up on what was palpably obvious to the early church. And so too this eschatology, this inaugurated eschatology. It's not like this age and then the age to come. Jesus has inaugurated this new age. And we live in the sort of in-between times. It's already here, but not yet completely here. And it's a tension for us. So to pick up, I don't think he's here, but to pick up um, Chris's point, Chris Goodwin-Hudson, uh, the reason why sometimes there's disagreements maybe on, on the application of that, how then we live, is really just, it, it, it's a kind of spectrum of interpretation as to whether we, uh, whether we 
if you like, welcome more of heaven now, more of the future now, or not. I actually don't think it boils down to theological arguments or reasoning. I think it has quite a lot to do with personality. I think some of us are just wired and made by God to, to just bring it all on now. We love the whole sort of jamboree. And others of us are just wired by God and no less lovely and no less beautiful. In fact, sometimes they're very beautiful and totally important. Um, just to work it all out. And God has made us all like that and we need one another. And to work out how it is we live as spirit-filled people in those different patterns. But we live in this period. It will be a tension. It'll often be uncomfortable. That's why I love, and I'm slightly eating into week five's talk, but I, I, just for now, I love, I, I think it's such an insightful image of the church as a body. Because um, as my wife is able to inform us, being a physio and any medical people here, your body is constantly in tension. It, muscle groups are working against each other in order to help me to stand now, to move my arms. There are, uh, all sorts of things. My intercostal muscles are in tension with my lungs. Um, uh, the reason why heart, my blood goes around my body is because there's pressure. There's, there's a constant tension going on that enables me to live. If there wasn't tension, I'd just flop and die. And, and so it is, it seems to me, with the spirit-filled church. We will live with tensions, um, which is why I'm slightly nervous of language like, just as long as everyone's happy. I want to tell you now, we will never all be happy. And if we are all happy, we're probably a million miles away from where the spirit is. So those two frameworks. And the Holy Spirit, uh, the New Testament writers are clear that it's the Holy Spirit who reveals this now and not yet, the already and not yet to us. Let's look at these two verses and then we're going to have a bit of a break. Um, uh, Ephesians 1, page 1108. We'll just look at that first one, where Paul, to uh, the church in Ephesus, describes the Spirit, and in this particular context, his work, as a deposit. He's moved Ephesians. Oh yeah, here we are. Okay. Uh, chapter 1 and verse 14, the end of this great sentence Um, uh, Let me just read the the paragraph just to to, to kind of get a bit of context from verse 11. In him, that's Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What is a deposit? It's a, it's a sum of money or some kind of goods put down now as a guarantee that the rest is to come. So I don't have the whole sum of money, but I have some money now which acts as a guarantee that the rest is to come. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit is a deposit. So we do not have the whole undiluted 
unequivocal kingdom of heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, they've not come yet, but it's promised. And how do I know that it's coming? How can I live by faith? And this I want to look at uh, in two weeks' time, even amid the hard times, even amid the suffering. How can I live? Because I have the deposit, which will guarantee my path, if you like, my journey through the hard times, through the suffering, in this temporal time, so that I can receive the whole inheritance in eternity. But the down payment is very real. It, it, I, it, there it is. What? In my hand. Back pocket. Thank you. I have the money now. It's not some kind of principle or some kind of promise. It's a, the deposit is something that is received. Similarly, the Spirit is decide, des, described. Just to go back to um, Romans. Uh, page 1071. The Spirit is a, acts as a first fruits. In Romans chapter 8. Right at the bottom right hand corner. From verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. As in the pains of childbirth. Right up to the present time. Not only so but we ourselves. Who have the first fruits of the spirit. Groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for our adoption. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And why do we wait patiently amid this groaning, amid this, this creation that is in the bondage to decay? We wait patiently because we've tasted the first fruits. It's an agricultural term. Uh, it's what the farmer does as he ha- maybe has his apple orchard or his field of wheat. He's looking and looking as the time draws near, as it's nearing harvest time. He's looking and testing and he looks at the ears of corn or he plucks an apple. He tries to. No, not yet. Not yet. But he just tries a few. And then this one. Yep, that'll come. That's the first apple that's come. Let me taste it. And he sinks his teeth into the apple. Oh! And that is just so juicy and so ripe and he knows that even though those apples aren't ready yet, they will be because of the evidence of the first fruits. And in the spirit we have, as it were, tasted the first fruits of God's kingdom. Really, genuinely tasted. We haven't looked at it behind a glass screen and kind of inspected it and thought, I bet that apple would taste nice if I could eat it. We've, we've tasted the first fruits if we are in Christ, baptized in his spirit, filled with his spirit. We have the first fruits which tell us that the whole harvest is to come. Um, let's pause there because the benches get uncomfortable. Uh, let's stand together. Uh, this is purely practical. It's just so that we you know, don't go numb in important nether regions. Um, but while you're standing, why don't you just turn around about, maybe someone in front of you, behind, and uh, just say hello, make sure you know who they are. And is there anything you've learnt uh, so far this evening? There may not be, but is there one thing you've learnt this evening? I'm a a bit dry.
Okay. Okay. Do have a seat again. Now, as I've said, um, next, it's not next week, it's in two weeks' time, because next week we're all here praying. But in two weeks' time, I want to look at um, um, the Holy Spirit and Spirit-filled living, Mark 2, which is how do we live in the not yet? How do we live as Spirit-filled people? How do we live as the Spirit-filled church, uh, the charismatic church, exhibiting the grace and the generosity of God? When all around us we see the world in the bondage to decay. We know of the the twisted and contorted, uh, abusive structures within which we work and we see the casualties of that all around in the lives of those we meet. We read it in the news and so on. How do we live with that tension of the taste, the foretaste, the first fruit taste of heaven amid hardship, trial, suffering? What I want to do today is to ask, how do we live, how, how should we be marked as individuals and as a church in the already? How should we live as spirit-filled Christians? Because that's what is commanded of us in scripture. That's what it is if we understand uh, what it is to be baptised in the spirit, to be immersed by Jesus, to be transformed through repentance the, the, the stopping marching in one way in order that we might turn about and march in another. It's interesting that metanoia, repentance, is a military term. When did you last see an army ambling or sort of shuffling or sort of just sort of strolling? When I was in France. <laughs> <laughs> For the tape, that was uh, when Nick was in France. We won't comment on the French army. Yeah. When they're on duty, maybe even the French army, they walk with intent. Uh, So if we are going to walk with intent as spirit-filled Christians, then what will that look like? What will that feel like? How does that happen? I want to just talk a little bit about um, how we know what controls us. If If I'm sneezing and my nose is running and my eyes are heavy and I'm just feeling grim, then there are all sorts of manifestations that I'm full of cold. And and we'd say, wouldn't we, we use that phrase, oh, I'm full of cold, which means that I I have a cold and just for the the time being, it's kind of controlling me. It's, it's, as it were, taken me over, which is, so I'm, you know, I'm always walking around with a box of Kleenex and, you know, don't come too close to me, you know going to bed early and drinking lenses instead of something else. I'm changing my life patterns because I'm full of cold. Or if I'm full of joy, or if I'm full of anger, then it, it manifests itself in a number of ways. And we would say that temporarily I'm controlled, seized, overwhelmed by joy, anger, whatever it is. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5, page 1111. Um, 
I'm thrilled that we're going to be looking at the letter to the Ephesians as uh, Jeremy Barnes, Jez Barnes, leads us um, or teaches us on the, the weekend away. So I don't want to say too much here, just in case I get it wrong and he'll have to correct me. But um, the first half of the letter is indicative, really. Jesus, uh, Paul, rather, is telling us of what has happened in Christ. And the second half of the letter, you see from um, um, chapter 4 and verse 1, really, is, is the halfway line. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. He's been describing that calling in chapters 1 to 3. And now he wants to, to, to pan out or flesh out what that calling will look like. Uh, living a life worthy of the life you've received. And so there are quite a lot of imperatives, verbs that are commands. You'll see as we come on to chapter 5, um, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live, oh, it's not so clear in this version, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And there are various, um, uh, you see just above there, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Um, and over, you'll be a familiar one, chapter 6 and verse 10, another command, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So lots of commands. The, the verb is in the imperative, urging, compelling Christians to live in a way that is worthy of the calling they've received. And it's interesting that as he gets near to the verse I want to look at, there are an increasing number of contrasts. So, for example, verse 15, these commands here, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. So, not like this, but like this, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So, don't be foolish, not like that, but this would have been a a Henry Cooper um, talk, wouldn't it? But like this, just like this. So there are these contrasts that he's making to the living that we're to do. And here I want to argue is perhaps the ultimate contrast, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Interesting, I wonder why he suddenly mentioned wine there. I don't know whether anyone's seen pictures, maybe you visited. Has anyone been to the Ephesus, the site of Ephesus? So you know, what, how's it, what's its um, geography like? What's, what's immediately just outside the city? Or was outside the city. Can you remember? There's a, that's right, there's a harbour. And then a huge, huge temple to Artemis or Diana. Thank you, Arabella. Massive. It was a huge, great mound. And the temple was enormous. And literally, it dominated the town. You, you could not be anywhere in Ephesus without being aware of a temple that had thousands of people um, circulating around it. I mean, it, it, was, it was a whole infrastructure in itself. And the, the essence of the worship... Were, were with these high priestesses. They were um, women priests who were in a sort of high state of ecstasy, fueled by alcohol. I mean, it was, it was a highly sort of charged alcoholic affair, would whip themselves up into this kind of worshipful frenzy. And there was all sorts of cultic prostitution that took place, all sorts of sexual immorality. And all of that is taking place, not sort of in some kind of seedy suburb. It's right in your face. So, I mean, it's difficult for us to get that when we sort of read this great letter and it's all black and white and no pictures. But, but every waking moment of the Ephesians' lives, they knew that there was this kind of intoxication that took place amongst them, if you like. And Paul says, here's his ultimate contrast, don't be 
um, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, here's the contrast, be filled with the Spirit. Don't let alcohol control you because it will affect the way you think, the way you speak, the way you react. It'll affect your thought life, your attitudes. So don't let alcohol control you. Instead, by contrast, let the Spirit control you so that the Spirit will affect your thoughts and your words and your reactions and your pattern of life. If we were to paraphrase this, we might say, Paul says, look, there's an intoxication, intoxication that is evident all around your city. And you, by contrast, are to be intoxicated, not with wine, but with the Spirit. Intoxicated in such a way that people might notice. People will notice. I put down there, I've conjugated that um, verb, be filled. It's the second person plural, present, passive, imperative, if you'd like to know. Uh, I want to argue that that's quite significant. It's the second person plural. I've mentioned this already. The real tragedy about the English Bible is that you is the same word for singular as plural. And sometimes we read all these things and say, oh, how sweet, God's speaking to me. And in this sense he is, but only within the context of the church. This is a letter to the church. And this is in the second person plural. Why is that significant? Because this being filled with the Spirit, being intoxicated with God's life, doesn't just apply to me or the PCC, or those who happen to turn up because they're keen to a prayer meeting. It is to everyone. This is addressed to the whole church, every single person. That's every one of us here, and every one of us who counts ourselves a member of God's church, but has not been to any of these meetings, but comes on a Sunday and says, yeah, I'm part of some of these. Well, the command is for them. Be filled with the Spirit. It's second person plural. Secondly, it's present tense. Uh, and uh, actually, if we were going to be more helpful with that, it's, it's present continuous. So that we might just as well translate this, go on being filled. I mean, literally, it's be being filled. Be in a constant state of being filled. Go on and on and on and on being filled. It's not a one-off thing. Oh yes, uh, uh, that happened to me actually in 1984 at a meeting. And so I've ticked that box. It's something that goes on and on and on. Reminds me of the, the Yorkshire lady who'd been married 25 years and she looked across the table at her husband and said, Alfred, doth thou love thee? And uh, Alfred said, I told thee that I loved thee on our wedding day and that if anything changed, I'd tell thee. <laughs> It's just that sometimes it's quite nice to know how we're doing. <laughs> and we can look back to a past event. We can look back to the cross of Christ. Yes, I know I'm saved from sin. But how is my relationship? And, and Paul knows that. And so he says in the present continuous, go on and on and on in a sense, knowing that you're in Christ. Because it is the ongoing experience of being filled with the Spirit. It's passive. Which is to say... That it's something that is, is done to us, if I can put it rather crudely like that. We are in the, we are the objects. Someone or something else is the, is the subject of the verb. 
we receive what God, the subject, loves to give to us. Be filled. It's something that God does to us. Now, that's significant because I think in the New Testament there are over 6,000 imperatives. There are 6,000 commands in all the letters to the, uh, in the New Testament churches. And only, excuse me, only 77 of those commands are in the passive. But here's one of them. So most of the commands are, this is what you should do. You are the subject of the action. You get going. You love. You be gentle. You be faithful. You uh, minister. Whatever it might be. But here... It's something that's done to us. We receive. In effect, there's nothing that we can do as we receive. Finally, it's imperative, as I've already covered. It's a command. It's not an option. I wonder if some of us sometimes are tempted to think of the ministry and the person and the work of the Holy Spirit as a bit like the sort of extras on a car. And we buy a car and that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's it. I'm saved because of what Jesus has done. I'm driving my car. Do you want some spoilers? Well, no, I don't think I will, thanks. Do you want some stereo? No, that's all right. Sunroof? No, you're all right. And it's kind of, do you want, do you want a bit of spirit? Well, it's all right. They, they can. I'm all right with just Jesus. It's just not an option. This is a command. Allow yourself to be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does that look like? We'll look at the very next verse. Um, do not be drunk on, drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking. As, as this, all of these now are participles. These verbs are participles, and if you like, they hang off this command. So, if you if you kind of picture a, I don't know, picture the, the command, be filled as a hook, and then all these things hang off the hook. Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Well, it results, doesn't it, in constant worship and worshipfulness as we encourage and sing as it were to one another now um, that's a wonderful thing for some of us to do we're, we're blessed by um, some wonderful singers and musicians in our congregation it's not such a great blessing um, for some of the others of us to do to one another to actually sing to one another it wouldn't be the greatest blessing but it is to, to denote a sense of, of just praise and wonder the wonderful thing I love here is the, is the kind of caveat at the end of verse 19. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So you don't have to sing out loud. But it is an attitude of heart. Which you would expect, wouldn't you, if we'd been filled with the Spirit. Because, do you remember Jeremiah's promise? I will put my Spirit in you. And Ezekiel, the, the promise through the prophet Ezekiel. I will, sorry, Jeremiah was a heart of flesh is removed. A heart of stone is removed and a heart of flesh is given and Ezekiel I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and it's from the heart that we'd want to sing and make music to the Lord it comes from the spirit verse 19 what else we're constantly thankful always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ can I just ask you does that mark your life our life collectively as a church are we constantly praising and singing, as it were? I'm not, please, it would be cheap to just say, so therefore we're going to just sing endlessly in the church. But it is interesting to me when we offer, from time to time, as our gathering together, an opportunity to sing, the reactions I get sometimes. Because it seems to me that that's just what happens. It's the er spill of our lives of being filled with the Spirit. We will sing to one another. We will sing and make music to the Lord as a, as a sort of overspill of gratitude and thankfulness. And so we're grateful to him.
being filled with the Spirit. In a sense, ironically, it's about emptying ourselves of ourselves in order that we might be more full of him. And the clear evidence, the fruit of that, will be gratitude and praise and worshipping hearts. How are we filled with the Spirit? How does this happen? And you may be wondering why I've got this here. Here we go, a little illustration. I've got a bowl of water, just if you're listening on the tape, and a sponge. And I want to sort of link some of the teaching from last week and the teaching from this week, this idea of being baptised in the Spirit, which I want to equate with being born again. It, it, It sums up baptism in the Spirit, sums up the whole of Jesus' ministry as we're overwhelmed and immersed in him. And being full of the Spirit, as we've seen here from Paul. Here's a sponge, and it represents us. Uh, It's dry. It's bone dry. No contact with the water at all, such that if it comes into contact with the water, well, you know, look at it. It's it's sitting right on top. I don't want anything to do with it. And and that may have been some of our experience. You know, we weren't brought up to go to church. We have an extraordinary sort of warped view of what Christians were. And to be honest, we wanted, you know, just, please, can it all just run off? I don't want to be contaminated at all. You know, sponge well away from any Christian thing. But when we, when we are born again, when we are baptised in the Spirit, whether we're immediately aware of that or whether we become aware of that over weeks and months and years and maybe even decades, it's, it's one and the same thing. It's, it's a recognition of the event that Christ has redeemed me, Christ has justified me. Christ has called me to be adopted into the family of God. And so we become baptised, immersed, overwhelmed. Sponge in water. But look, I've just put the sponge in the water and as I bring it out, although there's quite a bit there, it, it's not actually, that was a sponge in the water, it wasn't quite the water in the sponge. So as I'm baptised with Christ, as I'm immersed in him, if, I, if you like, I give my life to him, the water... Sorry, the sponge is in the water. But if I squeeze, apply a little bit of pressure, as it were, get rid of all the kind of resistances that the pockets of air are, then look at the sponge now. Just a few minutes ago, it was perched on top of the water. But as the sponge is immersed in the water, such that the water can fill the sponge, there is spirit-filled living. (laughs) actually what happens is you see then um, send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory and we go to the office and they say what did you do yesterday I was in church church you go to church why did you tell that joke like that last week with that kind of financial practice going on you weren't too nice to and we get knocked and bashed People ridicule us, don't take us seriously. Maybe we're overlooked for promotion. Friends will kind of keep their distance. We're not invited out to the parties or whatever. And and we begin to get a little bit twisted and bashed and resentful and dry. So that we sort of perch on top of the water again. We become, have you ever had periods of time like this when you're a bit resistant to churn? I don't like going to churn. I don't want to go to my home group. I don't want to come to Inside Out. And we need to, actually, it's a discipline. We give ourselves to Christ again so that we might be filled with his spirit. It's, it's one and the same thing. Sponge in the water and water in the sponge. Some, when we first come into a realisation, some people, it's wham, bam, thank you, man, the whole thing. And others, my experience was actually over a period of five or six years. I, I, was, I was sponge in water. I'd given my life to Christ, committed myself at school, and that was a tough call. Actually, you, you know where to hide really in school. You're either a Christian or you're not. And I thought, I'm a Christian. 
and took the flak. And it was hard, actually, because I, I knew nothing of the Spirit. I didn't know that I could ask to be filled with the Spirit, to, to have streams of living water. Do you remember John 7? Flowing from within me. Uh, and so I, it's, a, it's a gradual realization that I came into as I was taught and then encouraged to see that it's not just salvation. Living for God is not just sponge in water. It is also water in sponge. The tragedy is, let me just put this to one side. The tragedy is that in the church, in too many areas of the church on this topic, there's a polarity. And as soon as you mention the Holy Spirit, people go, oh, either gifts or fruit. And um, gifts are relevant, and I'll come on to that, but I've intentionally left it until the fifth week because there's so many more other important and I think prioritized things to say first of all. And fruit, um, there's plenty I could say about fruit. We taught, teach in a sense by inference. Uh, in fact, one of the house groups, the morning group, is going to do a study on the fruit of the Spirit. So that is there in terms of faithful, generous, uh, joyful, loving lives and so on. But actually, it's just the day-on-day power and presence of God that is kind of missed with the polarity. And we get into camps and we kind of throw stones at each other. And Paul would just bash his head against the wall, primarily, and all the New Testament writers. How do I experience this already of the kingdom? How do I experience the fullness of God? Prayerfully, you adopt your imagination. I think imagination is the, the seedbed for faith. You, you recognize in a sense where you are now and you begin to imagine where you'd like to be as a result of the encounter, the first encounter of Jesus or wherever you are with Jesus. Where do you want to be with him? Imagine. Because the Holy Spirit is the person who allows us to fall in love with God. Falling in love. Do you know of that? I remember when I fell in love over a period of time with Joe. I remember when I first met Joe. And I can actually remember when I very first met Joe. And I just remember being um, struck by her. And I began to imagine. She seems nice. You start to do the homework, don't you? Is she with anyone else? No, single, great. Okay, next step. I wonder whether... And what are her interests? What are my interests? Can I, can I kind of, can I contort myself so that my interests would match with hers? Can I sort of so arrange my day that I find myself in the same place as her? Oh, hi! I didn't think you'd be here. What a surprise! <laughs> I'm late for a lecture, but hey, let's have a coffee. And we met at university. I start to doodle. Because you see, it's just been Tim. It's just been Tim. Oh, it might have been, you know, Tim and Wendy, or Tim and Fran, or Tim and... But now, Tim and Joe. You see, now it's either Tim and Joe, it's all one word, Tim and Joe, Tim and Joe. But back then, so you play Tim and Joe. Hmm, I quite like that. <laughs> Sounds all right. Tim and Joe. Timothy and Joanne. No, that Tim and Joe. And you play. And you imagine. And you begin to, you, I, I found my thinking is, Tobit, I'm being controlled by this thought. My thinking, my actions, how I plan my day, what are we doing in the holidays? I want to be with Joe. I want Joe to be in my life. And so we begin to formalize a relationship. So much so that there's a ring on a finger and commitments are made that are long-lasting. It's no different 
with a relationship with God. And it's the Spirit that enables us to experience the reality of knowing God, not just as a concept, not just as that is a chair, but as a sort of, I'm going to sit in God, <laughs> lean back and put my whole weight on him, because the Spirit is kind of wooing me in that way. Imagination, which gives birth to the praise and the thankfulness. You see it in Acts. Let's just look at one, I haven't put it on the notes, but I think it's important. Acts chapter 10. Uh, thank you, 1042. In fact, it's 1043. This is, I, I think this is quite a significant thing. We, we, maybe we should unpack it a bit more, but not now. Um, because this is Peter speaking. He's been called, Peter a Jew, being called to speak at a Gentile's house. What? It's like an Arsenal fan being called to stand amongst the Tottenham fans. What? But here he is, and he's obedient to the call, and uh, he preaches in verse 44 of chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, this message about, uh, the basic gospel message, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who'd come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water, for they've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Do you see how Peter describes their coming to faith, as we might say, or being born again? It's not as they've understood the message of Jesus. Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit, just as we are. How did he know that they'd received the Holy Spirit and therefore understood the message of Jesus? Because they were speaking in tongues and praising God. I'm not going to talk about speaking in tongues today, but let me just say this by way of illustration. Sometimes I think we become so aware as we allow the Spirit to intoxicate us, we become so aware of how good God is and how great his love that somehow human words don't seem to be enough. A little while ago, we got some, Joe and I got some tickets um, for a family trip to the cinema. And it was when, a few years ago now, it was, um, I think I'm even finding Nemo. I don't know that dates this story. But anyway, the children were young enough that that was thought to be quite a treat. They're, they're becoming decidedly cool now, so you know, great. But back then, the thought of all of us going to a real cinema was just... And I said, I, I thought, right, I'm going to really sort of play this up. So I, got, I sort of theatrically drew this envelope out of my pocket. I said, gather round, children. So I opened up this, what do you think I've got in here? And I, said, I, don't know, I, don't know. I said, I've got, and I've sort of fanned out these cinema tickets. I've got some cinema tickets for Finding Nemo. And Becky, our eldest, said, oh, Dad, great. And Luke, who's our second youngest, said, wow, brilliant, cool. And Emma, who, I, th- I guess she was about five or six at the time, um, she knew that she was so excited. She knew that this was really good news. But I guess her language wasn't quite, all the, her sort of reactions of language weren't quite so developed then. So as I pulled out these tickets, and as Becky reacted with, thanks and praise, and Luke reacted with thanks and praise. Emma just went, <laughs> and just jumps up and down on the spot. That's praying in tongues. We'll come on to that. 
God is good. God is good. The question is not how are we filled with the Spirit, but actually what's stopping us? I'm coming into land and we're, um, we're not actually going to break down into groups. I just want to allow some space in a few minutes' time when I finish speaking for each of us where we are, just to be a kind of one-on-one with God uh, and to reach out to him and to ask to be filled with his Spirit that we might know the love of God in our hearts, which God has poured out by his Spirit. And as I say that, some of you are probably um, quite excited and some of you are probably quite nervous, anxious. And actually, I often find it isn't, the issue isn't that God's wondering whether he's going to pour out his spirit because he loves to. In Luke 11, Jesus teaches, he says, look, which of you fathers, even though you're evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does the father give the spirit to those who love him? And who asked for it? Luke 11, 9 through to 13. I wonder, it's not so much how are we in receipt of this gift of the Spirit, a new life. What's stopping us? Very often, maybe there's guilt. We feel actually that there's something maybe in our past or something about our, our current patterns of life that we kind of know we've been shielding or hiding from God. Just, I don't know, areas that we sort of want to hold on to and that we don't want him to look at or be aware of. And we feel guilty about that. Maybe there were things that happened to us and we reacted in such a way we feel we can't actually forgive others. I just want to say, and I hope this isn't harsh, but actually if we hold on to something that we think has not been adequately redeemed and dealt with, at the cross of Christ. In other words, we're saying there's something that lies outside the remit of God's universal and eternal salvation. That's extraordinary pride. Extraordinarily proud. You've got something that you can control beyond the reach of God. It isn't true. I want to say as lovingly as I can, there is nothing that you cannot tentatively but courageously hold out to God and say, God, will you please take and deal with this? Because I want, to, I want to know you. And I want to know, as Paul prayed in Ephesians, I want to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I want to be filled with your spirit. Often we're so driven, aren't we, as, uh, by and large as a culture. We think, well, what do I have to do? It's a passive command. You do nothing. Everything has been done For us, Jesus died on the cross. He's paid the price. We stand in receipt of the benefit. Be filled with the Spirit. There's nothing that we can do. I guess the biggest thing is actually fear. Fear. Yeah, I confess to you, I'm, I'm, I'm often riddled with fear. I think in subtle little ways, my, my ministry, uh, even my ministry here is riddled with fear. By that I mean I, 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 voices assume too great a resonance of what will so-and-so say if? What will they think of you if? And I, I am being controlled then, not by the love of God or by his call on my life or the exercise of the gifts he's given me. I'm being controlled then. I'm full then of fear of what they or him or her might think. 
perfect love casts out fear, the Bible says. God is good. God is good. He loves to give good things to those who ask. Do you know the the opposite of faith in this context is memory. I remember a time when I went to a meeting and it was really weird. And it was just the guy was there and he was kind of manipulating the whole situation. And I thought, hmm. And I've never forgotten. Or I read once or a friend told me once. And that memory just squashes faith to reach out and to dare to believe that despite what we might have heard or experienced in the past, often actually years ago, isn't going to override or ruin or undermine the love and the reality of God. Often it's fear that we'll lose control. I was reminded that the former Bishop of Coventry, Cuthbert Bardsley, once said, and I think he had a point here, delirious emotionalism is not the chief danger of the Church of England. And if I may borrow from Cuthbert Barsley, delirious emotionalism is not the chief danger of St. Dionys. Honestly. Honestly. It's not being filled with a knees up or an emotional high. It's being filled with the spirit. For some of us, the manifestation, just as you have a manifestation of joy or of anger or of a cold when you sneeze, for some of us it will be obvious, I imagine. It may be that actually as there's a release of the Spirit, a tear is shed. I've been in gatherings where sometimes I think just for the sheer relief of knowing the love of the Father, there's sort of laughter. I don't quite understand why. There doesn't have to be, but sometimes there is. And I know other people who are so full of the Spirit, and yet you'd never know. My um, incumbent, I hope this is okay on the tape, sure he wouldn't mind, my training incumbent, Um, was a very private, quiet, drawn guy who just, he was like that sponge. He just oozed the spirit, but you'd never know. He kind of was a guy who combed his hair immaculately. It was a parting, you know, razor parting down there. He was always immaculately dressed. His shoes were always, he hated my shoes, because my shoes were always, look at these shoes. And, and, you know, I always shirt half out. and, and, And he was always immaculately dressed, always on time. And yet the way he was, He just poured out the Spirit. There was never an obvious manifestation. But it was so clear he was full of the Spirit. We're different. God has made us unique. And some of us will manifest the Spirit in obvious ways and others of us it will be less obvious. But sometimes I think the fear that we've got to fit to some kind of mould inhibits us and prevents us from reaching out for God and being filled with his spirit. The fear is we'll lose control. But here's the little twist here. That's exactly the point. You do. You do lose control. It's not your life. It's his life in you. And for that, you have to lose control. Let me just um, try and illustrate that. With these... black 
Spirit-filled living is like bodyboarding. When you go bodyboarding, you're on a board and you go out and you're basically doing everything in your own strength. You lie on the board and you sort of flap your hands and you kick your legs and you go as fast as the flapping of your hands and the kicking of the legs would carry you until there comes a moment when if you've lined the board up right, the wave comes from underneath you and there's a moment of catch when you're paddling like this and you're kicking like that and you're going so fast and suddenly you feel it underneath you. It picks you up and it takes you and the power of the wave overrides whatever power you might have had and you surf into the shore. And coming to know God, ongoing over and over again and again, being filled with God is to continually catch him and the power of his spirit that you know his life in your life. Spirit-filled living is knowing the power of the wave experienced by the surfer on the board. And once we've experienced that once, then the injunction is to make every effort to keep the wind. So many Christians, sadly, through an ignorance of teaching on the Holy Spirit, live their lives like a rower. They go from one side of the river to the other, of the lake to the other, and they do it all in their own strength. Row and row, row and row. And they set the course, this is good. And you know, sometimes the wind, because the wind blows where it pleases, John 3. And you do not know where it comes from. And sometimes the rower heads into the wind. And you go, oh, it's jolly hard. I'm going to row harder, row harder, row harder. And Christian living is not doing it in your own effort. It's losing control of your effort and giving yourself to God. It is being filled with his spirit, which is to say the windsurfer who's totally reliant on the wind. Take the wind out of that picture and he falls flat on his back. He's totally reliant on the wind, like sitting on the chair with your feet up is totally reliant on the chair. He's giving himself to the power of the wind. And is he just like the kind of picture, the caricature picture of charismatics? Is he just having a great time? No. He is flipping alive. He's looking, he's feeling, he's moving all the time. Every muscle in his body is attuned to what the wind's doing next. Because if the wind suddenly falls, he's had it. So he's got to pay attention to the wind. But he's reliant and paying attention and attuned to the one thing that is beyond him. The wind. And as Christians, we are called by being filled with the Spirit to be reliant on and attuned to and alive to the one thing that is beyond us. God's transcendent Spirit who comes And by his grace fills us. A few moments for us to reflect. I realise that I've been speaking a long time. There's important stuff. This is vital. It's vital that we understand how we are to live as Christians. Through Christ and by his spirit. I'm going to invite us to stand in just a minute. And we're just going to take a few moments to be still and quiet before God. And each of us in our own hearts, wherever we are, and I don't know where you are tonight. It may be that for some of us, we want to ask for the very first time. You know, we're a bit like that sponge. We've kind of been hovering around, you know, Christian things. And maybe we've sat on the surface a bit. But we know, actually, you know in your heart of hearts. And even right now, your heart is probably thumping. I know I've not kind of been immersed in Jesus. I know actually my life is mine, not his. And as a result, you've never given the Lord the opportunity to fill you because you're not in the water. You're not in the relationship. 
Maybe that tonight is the time when you can actually, as it were, hold out your hands as a sign to say, God, please, I'm yours. Please take me and my life and my thoughts and my plans and my ambitions and my money, my possessions, my time. I want to be immersed in you so that you can fill me. Uh, Maybe that some of us, I'm sure most of us here, all of us here, can remember a time or a period of time when we, we, we knew ourselves to be in the water. But perhaps we've never consciously realized the gift of God to come into our lives by his spirit, to fill us in such a way that people would say, that guy's controlled by something. She's controlled by something. Who? What is it? That we'd manifest in some way the expression of God's life in us. One final story, briefly. Some of these farmers were pitching hay uh, into a great big haystack. Hard work, all of them, hard at it with the pitchforks, pitching the hay into a great big haystack. And uh, one of the men lets out a cry of desolation. Oh no! And he realises that in the, in the industry, his watch strap has broken and his watch has come off and it's fallen in the hay. And it's not just any old watch, it's a family heirloom. It's been in the family for generations and generations. It's a beautiful watch, it's never stopped. And he's lost it in the hay. Guys, guys. And so they put down their pitchforks and all of them, they're scrabbling through the hay. Where, where were you? When do you think you last had it? Well, I think I'm over here, but maybe... And they're trying to find the watch and they can't find it anywhere. And they're getting more and more desperate. The guy, his eyes are welling up as he thinks of his father and grandfather and great-grandfather. And he's lost the watch. Please help me find the watch. And there's hay going everywhere and they're getting more frantic. And they can't find the watch. It's lunchtime, they're hungry, so they thought, okay, let's just have a break. So they troop all in, shoulders down. And as they troop into lunch, a little boy is there and says, well, what's happened? And they explain, well, you know, Bert lost his watch. And the little boy thinks for a moment. And as they troop in, he goes out. And he sees this great big mound of hay with the dust still sort of flying around. And he just burrows himself right into the center of the hay. He gets lost right in the middle of the pile of hay. And then he lies stock still. And he listens. He listens for the sound of ticking. And there it is. And having heard it first, he waits. He doesn't rush. And he allows the whole of his being to tune into the ticking of the watch until the sound of the ticking of the watch assumes a disproportionate amount in his whole consciousness. And then slowly and surely he reaches towards the source of the ticking and he lays hold of the watch. How are we filled with the Spirit? It's as we ask God to fill us and as we wait on him expectantly, we listen as it were for him. We become aware and attuned to him. So let's do that now. Let's stand together. We've got just a few minutes before we finish at 9.30. And I'd encourage you just to be relaxed and alert. I'm going to ask simply that God would make himself real to us by his spirit and that we would be able to respond by being open to him, asking him in the quietness of our hearts 
to reveal more of his love for us. So Father, we thank you so much for your great love and mercy. We thank you so much that you've evidenced that in Jesus Christ. You've done the deal and the price is paid. We know that we are sons of the living God. We know that we can call you Father. And Lord, we stand here, if we're honest, at varying degrees of dryness, some of us. We've been trying and attempting and straining in our own effort. Lord, we'd love to receive afresh from you. We read of your promise to pour out your spirit on all people. We read of the command to be filled with your spirit. And Lord, we say, yes, please. And so we say, come, Holy Spirit. And just in these moments of silence, precious silence, please don't worry about anyone else. This is just you individually, within the corporate context. You and the Lord. Reach out to him in your heart. Be alert to what the wind of the Spirit is revealing. Maybe the truth of Jesus Christ afresh. The truth of where you stand because of his sacrifice. Of how God now sees you. His child. His son. I often find there's conviction of sin myself, personally. I become aware of areas where I've let God down. Confess it. It's baggage. Get rid of it. So that you may receive more of him. Some of you are tempted to kind of move on. Okay, done that. Just linger. It's like waiting for the watch. It's a practice, actually. It's a skill. It's a discipline. To be aware of God by his presence. And as you sense him, come just thank him. Just remember, filled with the Spirit, singing psalms and songs and thanking him. Just in the quietness of your heart, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. For who you are and for what you've done.
And just as we remain in an attitude of quiet and prayer and kind of uh, relaxed and alert to God by his spirit, we're going to uh, just finish off. It's just nearly half nine. We're going to finish by singing um, The Lord's My Shepherd. Um, feel free if you, if you want to. Just feel free, totally free to sit or to stand. Um, I'd encourage you, though, just to make the most of these few minutes that remain. Some of us will sing. You may not feel like singing as you just want to continue to focus on God. That's fine. This is an expression of being filled with the Spirit. It's singing psalms, hymns, songs to one another from the Spirit and giving thanks in our heart to God. Uh, So I'm going to invite Sean to lead us.